All right, this is 2 Samuel chapters 11, verses 1 through 5, 14 through 15, and 26 through 27. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought to her his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of God. Thank you, Christine. Merry Christmas, everyone. It's good to see you. For those of you I haven't had the pleasure of meeting yet, my name is Jeff, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, allow me to read also from Matthew 1, 1 through 6. Uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series called The Mothers of Jesus, where we're going over and highlighting the stories of all the, the mothers that are listed in Jesus' genealogy as recorded in uh, Matthew chapter 1. Unfortunately, I don't have that text before me, and so you're going to have to remember and trust me uh, about whenever I refer to Jesus' genealogy. What a year 2022 has been. It's been another doozy. Globally, a war continues to rage in Ukraine as rockets rain down over its cities night after night, killing hundreds of innocent civilians. In Iran, protesters march the streets and are being round up and executed for speaking out against the unjust murder of Masa Amini. Nationally, our country is as polarized as ever. Sometimes I'll read CNN and Fox News, compare them side by side, and discover that they are covering two completely different worlds. Economically, consumer prices rose 9% this past June, the largest increase in over 40 years. This past week, I saw a headline that said that there's a grocery store in Oakland selling a head of iceberg lettuce for $11. Not even romaine, the good stuff. Iceberg lettuce for 11 bucks. Locally, how many of us are sick and tired of being sick and tired? 
We are living in a tridemic where COVID, the flu, and RSV are threatening us all at the same time. Our homes are petri dishes of various viruses and infections as we all take turns being sick. And I know there's a lot of you streaming from home right now because of this reason. A few weeks ago, we received an email from IUSD saying that our kids have reached the maximum number of excused absences. Apparently, you can only get sick a certain amount of times. This is precisely why Christmas could not come at a better time, right? How many of us could use the days off? How many of us can use some Christmas cheer? We look forward to plopping down on our couches, listening to our favorite carols, watching Christmas classics, snuggled up with a warm blanket next to our loved ones while holding a hot cup of cocoa. Now, if that picture is enticing to you, if that is all that Christmas means for you, if Christmas is nothing more than nostalgic songs and dazzling light displays, if Christmas is nothing more than a holiday that offers a break from life, a distraction from the darkness of this world, then I want you to know that you are missing out. As wonderful as those aspects are about the Christmas season, you are missing out because Christmas is so much more than simply a holiday. Ultimately, it is a holy day. It is a holy day because it celebrates the day where God doesn't simply distract us from the stressors of this world, Rather, it celebrates the day where God destroys the darkness of this world, where he sends his son into this world to face the world's darkness and overcome it. And to help us appreciate how Christmas is a holy day, we've been exploring the various mothers listed in Jesus' genealogy. Now, I know this is not a a typical Advent passage that churches talk about. You probably came here this morning expecting me to talk about angels, mangers, wise men, and a star. Why a genealogy, Jeff? They're the most boring parts of Scripture, There's no action, there's no character development, there's no story. It's just a list of names. It's as fun as reading the yellow pages for those of you who remember what they are. Yet, though genealogies may seem irrelevant and boring to us, I want you to know that genealogies were incredibly significant for people in Jesus' day. They were significant because genealogies didn't just tell you who you came from. Genealogies told you who you were. Now, I know it's hard for us who grew up with a Western individualistic mindset to understand how a genealogy can define who you are, 
But back then in Eastern traditional cultures, your family affiliation said more about your identity than your individual accomplishments. And so back then, genealogies functioned much similar to how resumes function today. Today, our resume showcases our pedigree, our significance, our capabilities. On our resumes, we list the schools we graduated from, the degrees we achieved, the companies we've worked for, the job titles we've held. On one piece of paper, they communicate to the employer who you are. Well, that's how genealogies worked back then. They told people who you were. And so it was common for people back then to doctor their genealogies or curate their genealogies much the same way that we do with our resumes. For example, we might highlight on our resume the college we graduated from, not the college we flunked out of, right? We'll highlight the companies we've worked for, not the companies we've got fired from. We want to showcase our, uh, those things that uh, highlight our achievements. We want to highlight those things that would impress whoever's reading our resume. Well, they did the same thing with their genealogies. In their genealogy, they'll omit the name of that crazy uncle who went to jail, right? They'll omit the, the crazy granduncle who was executed for treason. Names like that that would bring shame to the family were conveniently left out. At my previous church, there was actually a member who once confided and told me that she is related to Adolf Hitler. She told me that I think it was her great-granduncle or a great-grandfather or great-grandmother was Hitler's nephew or niece. And as you can imagine and understand, she said, I don't want anyone to know this about me. That would be a name you would leave out of your genealogy. Now, this is precisely why Jesus' genealogy is so shocking. When Matthew begins his gospel, the first words say this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He sets our expectations high because he calls Jesus Christ. I want you to know Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title, a title that means Messiah, anointed one, the promised deliverer of God. And so for the, uh, the Jewish reader back then, the moment they see the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the bar of expectation is raised high as they are now anticipating to read a list of names that read like the who's who of Old Testament history. They're anticipating coming across a list of, ex of very distinguished and upstanding individuals. But that is exactly the opposite of what they see and encounter. The first thing that jumps out are the names of women. Genealogies were patrilineal. 
They only listed fathers and sons. What are women doing in Jesus' genealogy? Women held no status or significance back then. And it's not just any women that Matthew lists, but notorious women. Women like Tamar, who pretended to be a prostitute in order to sleep with her father-in-law. That's a crazy headline. You don't even see that in the Jerry Springer show, right? And yet, you have also women like Rahab, who didn't just pretend to be a prostitute. She was a prostitute and used her home as a brothel. And then you have women like Ruth, which we talked about last week, a foreigner, an outsider who comes from the godless country of Moab. And then you have Bathsheba, who we're going to talk about, someone who is tainted or stained in her own way. Any of these women on their own found in Jesus' genealogy would have caused a stir. Collectively, all these women together present in Jesus' genealogy would have caused a scandal, which causes us to ask, why does Matthew list them? He should have omitted these names. This is Jesus Christ, after all. But he doesn't. He includes them for a reason. And we're going to discuss why. But before I do so, let's first talk about the story of Bathsheba. I want you to know that her name is actually not mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. Instead, Bathsheba is referred to as, quote, the wife of Uriah. Now, before you accuse Matthew of chauvinism because who would want to be known as someone's wife? I want you to know that the, the reason why he refers to Bathsheba as the wife of Uriah is not because he's trying to take a jab at Bathsheba as much as he's trying to take a jab at King David. Who is Uriah? Uriah was one of David's closest friends. He was known to be a member of David's mighty men. The mighty men of Israel were like the equivalent of today's Navy SEALs. It was a group of 30 soldiers known for their military conquests and prowess. And any soldier will tell you that when you go to war, that builds up an affinity a loyalty and affection for your fellow soldiers like no other. There's nothing that quite binds men together than facing life and death situations. That's why they are called a band of brothers, right? And so these mighty men loved one another. They had each other's backs until now. One day, David spots a beautiful woman bathing. She catches his eye, and he immediately inquires about her. Who is she? A messenger informs him she is Uriah's wife. Now, the moment the messenger mentioned Uriah's name is the moment that David should have dropped whatever devilish plans he had in his mind. This was Uriah, one of his bros. 
And yet, to his great shame, he sends for her and sleeps with her. Now, growing up, for some reason, I always had in mind that this act of adultery was consensual, that this was an affair that both David and Bathsheba agreed to. But the more I look at Scripture, the more I realize, actually, that's inaccurate. There's no biblical justification that suggests that Bathsheba contributed to this sin. When you read the text, it makes very clear that the author holds Bathsheba in a very positive light. She is a godly woman as much as Uriah is a very godly husband. When you read the grammar, there's a list of verbs that are listed. In verse 4, David sent for her. David took her. David lay with her. The Bible makes crystal clear that David is the aggressor, that he is the one acting here. As such, he is solely to blame. After all, back then, when the king summons you, you obey. When the king wants to sleep with you, you had no choice. There was no higher power that you could appeal to. And so this wasn't simply an act of adultery. This was rape. This was inconceivable for the king of Israel to do. To suggest that Bathsheba shares in responsibility only perpetuates the cycle that we've seen throughout history where we tend to blame the victims of abuse, and it's a cycle that needs to stop. Unfortunately, Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And so what does David do? Does he come clean? Does he repent of his sin? Unfortunately, no. He tries to cover up his tracks. He calls Uriah from the front lines as a way to give him an excuse to go home and sleep with his wife so that later on when Bathsheba's pregnancy is revealed, Uriah won't think twice as to who the father is. But Uriah, godly, upstanding Uriah, can't accept having some free time and enjoying time with his family when his brothers are risking their lives on the front lines. And so out of respect for what they're going through, he refuses to go home. What a contrast between Uriah and David. And so David's plot fails and he resorts to plan B, which is to find a way to get rid of Uriah. So he orders Uriah to the front lines to where the fighting is at its fiercest, and then he orders Joab to retreat from Uriah so that he's left exposed. This time, David's plan succeeds, and Uriah is killed. And now David is guilty of murder. I want you to think what it must have been like for Bathsheba during that time. She was no dummy. She knew that her husband's death wasn't 
an unfortunate accident. She knew that David must have been behind it. And now she's forced to marry him and give birth to their child. The grief, the anger, the heartache, the rage. Because of David, she lost her purity, her innocence, and her husband. This is what we think of when we see the phrase, the wife of Uriah in Jesus' genealogy. This is the dirty laundry that rises to the surface when Matthew mentions this phrase. Why? I mean, he could have easily omitted the wife of Uriah. He could have easily stated, and David was the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Rehoboam. No one would have blinked twice. And yet David inserts, the wife of Uriah is the mother of Solomon. There are three reasons why I believe Matthew intentionally brings this up. First, I believe Matthew brings out this dirty laundry in order to show us that no one is beyond the need of God's grace. No one is beyond the need of God's grace. Not even David, the one who is known to conquer the mighty Goliath, the one who is responsible for writing beautiful psalms found in the Bible, the one who has a reputation of being a man after God's own heart. Even David desperately needs God's grace. David and Bathsheba's story reminds us that what we see on the outside isn't always reflective of what is going on on the inside. David and Bathsheba's story reminds us of the old adage that appearance does not equal reality. I mean, think about it. No one had a loftier reputation than David did. He was the king. He was chosen by God. He was a renaissance man, mighty with the sword, great with the pen, good with musical instruments. He had it all. And the same could be said about Bathsheba. Sure, it's sad that her first husband died, but now she's a queen of Israel. She's gorgeous. She lives in a palace. She's rich and beautiful. How many women must have envied her? Wow, she has the perfect life. David and Bathsheba, what a beautiful couple. And yet underneath the polish and the veneer, you have two souls devastated, damaged by sin. You have two souls hurting, grieving, grieving, darkened by sin. One as a victim, the other as the assailant. Both need grace. Both need healing. Both need God's intervention. Dear friends, can we not relate? 
whether you realize it or not, there are millions of people in this world who would love to have your life. Who would love to live in America. Who would love to live in California. Who would love to live in Orange County. Who would love to live in Irvine. Who would love to make the money you make. Live in the houses you live in. Drive the cars that you drive. Have the jobs that you have. They would envy you and trade places with you in a second. And yet how many of us, despite what the world sees on the outside, are really struggling this morning? Who have minds that are laid low, hearts that are laid low by sin and the brokenness of this world. Underneath it all, the story of David and Bathsheba reminds us that no one is beyond the need of God's grace, rich or poor, educated or uneducated. We all need Jesus. This leads us to the second lesson of why Matthew includes the phrase wife of Uriah in Jesus' genealogy. The second point is closely related to the first one, but it deserves its own uh, mention here. The story of David and Bathsheba teaches us not only that no one is beyond the need of God's grace, but also that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. You see, Jesus' genealogy tells us not only who Jesus came from, it also teaches us who Jesus came for. It teaches us who Jesus came for. What's crazy to me is how different God's wisdom is from our own. Did you know that David had eight wives and ten concubines? Why do I mention this weird point? It's because God had 18 women he could have chosen to be the mother of Solomon, who's the ancestor of Jesus. He had 18 women he could have chosen to bear the mantle of Jesus' ancestor. And so who does he choose? He chooses Bathsheba. the one most scarred, most devastated, most bitter, most angry. He chooses Bathsheba to remind us of the type of people Jesus came for. You see, when it comes to God, we often make the mistake that he is like us. And I've made this point a couple of years ago. Dane Ortland writes that we make the mistake of projecting ourselves onto God. So that someone who is incredibly rich will look down on someone who is poor. Why can't you guys just get a job and work like I did? 
Someone who is incredibly athletic will make fun of someone who is uncoordinated and clumsy. Someone who is musically gifted will be perplexed at someone who is tone deaf. Someone who prides themselves in being well-refined and cultured will thumb their nose at someone who is ill-mannered and uncultured. And so we, we make the same assumption that God must be like us. And so since Jesus is the great I am, since he is God most high, since he is the Christ, he must look down on the sinfulness and brokenness of his people. And yet this is precisely why we need the Bible, says Ortland. We need the Bible to remind us that Jesus is not like us, praise God. The holy, beautiful, and majestic, Jesus finds his broken and wounded people irresistibly attractive. Like a medic in a war zone searching for those who are wounded in war, Jesus comes to this earth and he is searching for those wounded by the fall. He draws near to those crying out from sin. His deepest impulse and most natural instinct is to move towards the suffering and sinfulness of his people. And this is why Jesus' genealogy is full of sinners. It describes who he came for. He came for those who know they cannot fix themselves. He came for those who know that following their favorite self-help podcaster isn't really going to fix them. He came for those who know that changing a job or getting a raise isn't really going to fix them. He came for those who know that even getting straight A's or getting into their dream school isn't really going to fill them and satisfy them. He came for those who know they have a God-shaped hole in their heart, a hole that only God can fill. In this world, your family name matters. Your education matters. Your race and your gender matter. In this world, your money and status matter. Your beauty, your body shape, your height matters. In the world, you have all kinds of measuring sticks used to tell you and others whether you matter or not. Christmas is the day where God tells sinners, you matter to me. In God's kingdom, in my kingdom, it is not like the world's. The very things you feel that disqualify you from me are the very things that attract me to you. Last but not least, 
the story of David and Bathsheba teaches us not only that nobody is beyond the need of God's grace, nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace, but it also teaches us that God redeems evil, that God redeems evil for good. I'm sure there were moments where Bathsheba probably wanted to end her life. I'm sure there were moments where Bathsheba felt like her life was functionally over, where she felt trapped and suffocated by her marriage, knowing what David had done to her, knowing what David did to her husband. She probably thought that his horrible act would forever define who she is. Thankfully, it would not, for God wasn't done writing her story. Evil would not have the last laugh. God would redeem her brokenness. He would give her a son named Solomon who would become the wisest king of Israel. She would become a an ancestor of Jesus the Messiah. Instead of being defined by this evil committed against her, God would give her a new identity. As horrific as the darkness was in her life, God would redeem that darkness for her healing and the world's glory. And Bathsheba's story is not some blip on the biblical radar. It is God's MO. It is what we see time and time again. God loves to redeem evil for good. And we see this ultimately at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. No greater act of evil was ever committed by the history of mankind than when we crucified Jesus, the Son of God. And yet God would redeem that devilish act and use it to become the greatest act of love ever demonstrated in the history of mankind. The greatest evil would become the greatest good Jesus died so that we might live. Jesus was wounded so we might be healed. Jesus would bear the wrath of God so that we might experience the love of God. Dear friends, I know that behind our big homes and cushy jobs and six-figure bank accounts, perhaps seven, eight figures, we all have deep wounds. Could be a broken relationship. It could be the loss of a loved one. It could be a physical disability, a mental illness, a wayward child, a financial hardship, so on and so forth. The story of David and Bathsheba proves that your struggle, whatever it may be, does not have to define you. It shows that God can redeem our wounds for his 
glory and for our good. As you can see, Christmas is more than just a holiday. It is a holy day. It's more than just an escape from this world. It's the day where God entered our world and overcame it through his radical love. Dear friends, if you are hurting this morning, if you feel your need for God, all you need to do is turn to him and he will turn to you. All you need to do in the quietness of your heart is call out to him and ask him to forgive you, to heal you, to redeem you. And that is the glory of Christmas. And that is why we celebrate. Let's pray. Lord, we are David. We are Bathsheba. We are souls who are in desperate need of your intervention, desperate need of your forgiveness, desperate need of your healing. We thank you, O Lord, that you came into this world to do for us what we couldn't do for our own. And you offer us eternal life. You offer us adoption as sons and daughters. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would move into our hearts, helping us to see the the wonder of what Christmas points us to, and that every soul here would reach out to you and find wholeness in your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.